I hope to continue in our study on the gospel according to Matthew. And we'll be starting chapter 10 today. So if you would please turn there, chapter 10, verse 1. And chapter 10 really kind of starts to steer us in a different direction from where we've been uh, in the last couple of chapters. Uh, takes us to something new and different happening in the ministry of Christ. And it really is carrying on from the end of chapter 9. So the last few verses that we looked at uh, from last week uh, are really kind of a transition uh, transition passage into what we're seeing here in chapter 10. This, this takes kind of a, a, a different uh, focus here by Matthew. Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits, to cast them out, and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Let's look at, back at verse 1 here. And when he called unto him his twelve disciples. So last week, as we looked at the, the, the passage at the end of chapter 9, we were seeing Jesus' ministry expanding uh, even more than what we had read uh, earlier in the gospel. It was growing and there was a massive outpouring of God's grace. The kingdom of heaven was being revealed to the people. And as part of that, Jesus is looking upon the people, and He's with His disciples, and He's, he's looking at them, He's telling them how great this harvest is. Look at this outpouring of God's work upon the people. Look how great it is. Matthew chapter 9, verse 38 said, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that He will send forth, laborers into His harvest. So Jesus told His disciples to be praying for laborers. And we're not told how many are here at this moment when He's actually telling them this. But He's telling a group of disciples, possibly a very large group based upon what we had seen throughout chapter 9. And as He's commanding this, and you, you, if you consider often hearing a preacher and he's saying, you know, be praying for this, oftentimes in our heads we we'll start to be praying, even if it's short or just a few words. Our minds, our hearts often get turned towards that, to praying for it, knowing it's something we want done. There, there's a, a desire that wells up within the believer when he's commanded to, to, to be praying, when somebody says, be praying for this. And so we have these people here, the Lord's commanding them, pray. And maybe these people, I would expect, uh, knowing how the Lord has worked in, in me and others I've talked to, I would expect that these people began to pray somewhat while listening to the Lord tell, the, tell these things to His disciples. And the, as the Lord is saying this, He then really immediately answers what that prayer is. Be praying for these things. Now here's the answer to that prayer. And he calls out 12 disciples specifically. Out of whatever number is there, we're assuming it's a large number, he pulls 12 out. 
and He personally calls these laborers into His harvest. He is the one that pulled them out. He didn't take a, he didn't take a poll. How many here thinks these should be the guys? He didn't say, how many here want to volunteer for this? He didn't look out and say, hey, you know what? You've been here every day. You'd be a good choice. I've walked into churches where you're there for a Sunday or two, and they're like, hey, you want to run the youth group? Hey, you want to do this? They'll be inviting you to do all kinds of work. We don't have that here. Jesus had already spent a large amount of time with these men, and he calls them out. He's separating them out from this group of disciples. The nature of the calling of the twelve, and from what we have seen already through the scriptures, we've already seen the calling of these of some of these men into full-time service. Recently we looked at Matthew being called into full-time service. When we look at these things, this shows us that there is a special importance here uh, concerning the Lord towards these men. There is some special affection here that he has towards these men. And when you consider some of the things that they do, you know, most obviously Peter uh, and even Thomas when he denies uh, or, or doubts the resurrection of the Lord, when we look at these things, we wonder, why would you choose these men, some of these guys? When we look at Judas, Judas got thrown into this number too. And we look at this, and all we can say is, is by God's grace, there was some special love and affection there from eternity that He wanted these men to be part of this number, and 11 of them to be very close to Him spiritually. Each of these men, hand-picked by God, even Judas, John Chapter 6, verse 70 says, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? John 13, 18, he says, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. And he was quoting, he's referencing Psalm 41, 9, which says, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. During his high priestly prayer, Jesus said in John seventeen twelve, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Peter, speaking to the brethren, said in Acts chapter 1, 16 and 17, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was, guide, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. He had obtained a part of it. He was a part of this ministry of Christ, but he was not truly of them. Judas was used according to the plan of God concerning the sacrificial death of Christ. It was not some accident. It was not some unknown betrayal. It didn't catch Jesus off guard at the very end. How could you do this? I never saw it coming. This, this wasn't the Lord's intent. He knew. It was prophesied from of old that this man would come and God would use this evil man towards this great sacrifice this atoning sacrifice. Jesus knew 
the entire time that this man was going to betray him. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24 reads, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. This is Peter speaking. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which we have here as well. The disciples are being proven this way. Which by God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. These things were all determined by God. They were part of His plan, His will. It wasn't going to go any other way. There were no surprises. This was all done according to that counsel and the foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. This was part of the plan. This was part of the will of God before the foundation of the world was laid, before the creation of man. Before man even sinned, God knew what the heart of man would be. He knew that the fall would occur, and He had already put into motion a plan that would redeem a people to Himself, where those who have sinned, those whom He had chosen before the foundation of the world, would be saved through His only begotten Son. Verse 24 says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be holden of it. Nothing was going to stop this plan from taking place. Nothing was going to keep Christ in that grave. It was part of God's will that He would be resurrected. He would overcome sin, He would overcome death, and He was victorious. Before the great betrayal by Judas, Judas was used by our Lord as part of that great ministry that we are told about throughout the Gospels. When we see all of these wonderful things concerning Christ and all that He did, this man was following Him around, pretending to be a close confidant. He had all the other uh, disciples. He had the other apostles fooled. They never saw it coming. But Christ did. He knew. He revealed it at the Last Supper that He knew what the intent and the heart was of this man. He knew who He truly was. The heavenly things witnessed by Judas, all of the teaching and the preaching he heard, all of the miracles that he saw, being day in and day out with the Son of God. And yet he still rejected who Jesus Christ was. He rejected the grace of God. This is the nature of man. That man doesn't want these things naturally. And all of these things that he was privy to, all of these things were adding to the condemnation that he received. The faithful men that remained, those that were kept by the Holy Spirit and went on to serve after the resurrection, were used by Christ to establish his church. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. The apostles were active, teaching, preaching, instructing, the church, laying down all of these things that were by Christ Himself so that the people knew what truth was, that they understood the mind of God. These were the men that brought this message to God's people, specially chosen messengers of Jesus Christ, used to deliver this glorious message of the gospel of grace. They were called by Him to follow Him full time, 
to hear his teachings, to see all of these miraculous works, to see how he ministered to people, how he cared for people, and how he lived perfectly righteous. There was no greater example that man could have than to be in the presence of the Son of God, perfect and holy, upholding all that God has laid out in in His righteousness. These men lived with Christ for almost three years. There's a special intimacy that was built between them, a special bond that was built between these men. They were privy to things that nobody else had been privy to in this relationship. They sat at the Master's feet day in and day out, hearing Him preach and teach, hearing how He just talked normally. I mean, you, you know, you, you've, you've been around enough preachers, you know that when you're standing up here, it's a little different than the way we talk when we're not up here. And to think about that kind of normal conversation, that everyday talk, Just about everything that they did, these men were all part of that. They were part of something special in this relationship. They were trained. They were raised up by Christ Himself for this special work, for this ministry, this special purpose. Here in verse 1, they are commissioned by Christ and empowered by Him for this special ministry. This ministry that He had been teaching them and prepping them for through His commands, His examples, everything. It's perfect. (laughs) He is perfect. They were able to glean off of every moment that they were with Him something glorious and grand. There is nothing about Him that would not have been able to be taken away that that wouldn't have been to their benefit. The Lord of the harvest has called them here. The Lord of the harvest is sending them out into His harvest. They are His laborers. Matthew chapter 10, continuing in verse 1 here, Jesus gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. The twelve were to go out and they were to preach the good news to proclaim the Messiah, to proclaim the day of salvation, to teach concerning the kingdom of heaven. They have seen Jesus doing all these things. They were learning from Him all of these things. And now He's telling them, you're going to go out and you're going to do these same things. This is is really unbelievable. (laughs) As we've looked at all that Jesus has done, we see these miracles. We see see the, the deity of Christ just bursting through all of these things. We see the grace of God just pouring out through His ministry. And He takes these men and He says, you're going to do these same things I'm doing. You're going to have power over the devils. You're going to go out and you're going to heal people miraculously. And you're going to preach this same message that I've been preaching. You're going to deliver this to my people. You're going to do it in my name, on my behalf. And how many times did we see throughout the book of Acts that something was done in the name of Jesus? Peter said that often, healing people in the name of Jesus. This is what they are doing here. They're doing these things in the name of Jesus. The authority of the messages that Jesus spoke accompanied by His miracles were this demonstration of His deity. Nobody could do these types of things save God Himself or somebody that was, a, that was specially appointed 
by God to perform such things. Jesus is both God and also God's anointed. As the Messiah, He is God's anointed. So He has the power to do these things, but as the Son of God, He's also been appointed by the Father to do these things on behalf of the Father. He commissioned the twelve men as God and as this anointed one. He's passing this on to them. He gave them this power and this authority to do these miracles, to preach the gospel. The miracles were demonstrating the great authority that was given to them. The message and doctrine they proclaimed being, is being confirmed as being from God. And we saw that with Christ, that with that great power and authority in the sermons and in His teachings, He brings in these miracles to confirm it even further in the minds of men. He doesn't need to confirm it. He's already divine. But to show it to men that where we understand it, to where we can comprehend these things, He gives these miracles to accompany it. Men often need more than just words, sadly. And here He gives men more than just words with what He does through His apostles. The work that these men performed was not of their own. Everything was on behalf of Christ. They were representing Him. They spoke for Him. They performed these miracles for Him. They didn't go out to do it so that they could make money. They didn't go out and do it so that they could receive fame. And we don't see anywhere in here where it says that there were people coming from all over to see them like we saw with Christ. Why? Because these men weren't focusing upon themselves. When they went out, they were putting the, the focus and attention upon Jesus Christ. It brought more people to Him. They weren't drawing these massive crowds to themselves. They were directing people to Christ. They even had authority over the devils, it says here, which is an extraordinary power that we, we had seen in Christ. This was something that amazed really even the Pharisees. It took them back. They really couldn't even understand it. We looked at how they tried to criticize Christ and say, well, then you know, this can't be of God. It must be of the devil. And, and Jesus corrected them on that, rebuked them in strong terms. These men were given authority that no other mere human had ever been given. What they had been given even surpasses that of the prophets. They spoke on behalf of Jesus Christ. They had a relationship with Him that no other man had with God. No other servants have been given this type of authority to speak for Christ, to convey to the redeemed the literal words, the thoughts of God, the will of God in such a manner. Later, after the resurrection, God would ordain some of these men to write Holy Scriptures. And some of these men would have influence upon those who were not apostles that wrote scriptures, such as Mark and Luke and, uh, and James, who all wrote according to apostolic influence. There was still apostolic authority. As we read through the scriptures, we see that spring forth. We see that relationship there. These men weren't out just on their own, just writing scripture. There was still that apostolic authority that influenced the writing of those other uh, books of the New Testament. 
So foundational was the ministry of the apostles. So essential were the doctrines that they taught that what God had done in them, what He had done through them, would be forever memorialized in heaven. If you would turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, 9. When we think about glory and we think about heaven, we, we, we can't help but to think of, of God. We, we, we think of how wonderful it will be to be in His presence, to, to, to be in His glory. To, we, we look at passages like we see in Isaiah chapter 6, and uh, we, we see these descriptions about God throughout the Scriptures, how wonderful He is in, in, in His kingdom, on His throne. And yet, we see here something quite amazing in that he does some other things here. There's not just, we don't just stand around God Himself in eternity. There's some other things here. Revelation 21.9 And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither. I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. These things, these men, these things are etched into glory here. Not because of who they were, not because of just these men being themselves, but because of what God had done through these men. He had chosen them to perform these tasks, to, to speak on His behalf, to be delegates to His people in His name. How important this is, how critical it was for him using these people as part of his plan for his people, for his church, is forever memorialized. He wants people to remember, look what I did. I called these men, I equipped them, I had a special relationship with them for all these years, personally, face to face, and then beyond, spiritually. And he used them as the foundation of building His church upon them, upon their doctrine. Their doctrine is God's doctrine. They didn't make it up themselves. They didn't conceive of it themselves. It's not from their brains of their own thinking. It's all of God. It is what God had given them. When we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, God inspired these men. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke what God wanted them to speak. They did the things that God wanted them to do for His people, for His church. It's easy to look back and identify these men, so many of these men, in their weaknesses and their mistakes. As I mentioned, Peter, you know, he made some mistakes. We think about him walking out onto the water and losing his faith and going into the drink. We, we, we think about him denying Christ after uh, Jesus' arrest. We think of Thomas and, and him doubting 
and some of his other pessimistic qualities that he had. We see these men and we can look at them and you know, we could point fingers. We're like, how could you do this? It's kind of like Peter when we looked at there, the woman with the issue of bleeding. And he's like, you know, Jesus, you, didn't you look at all the people pressing upon you here? How could you not feel somebody pressing upon you? You know, to ask such a question, <laughs> to be among Jesus, be with Him all this time, and to ask such things, to do such things. And look how often we fail and falter and sin and, and how often we do things far, far worse. It's easy to look at some of these guys' mistakes, but we must never forget the great and mighty work that God had done through them. These men are, are, are revered because of what God has done through them and how God used them. The godliness that He produced in them, the character and the conduct that He produced in them, the miracles, all these awesome signs and wonders He performed through them, the messages they preached, the examples that they left for us, how He used them laboring to build the churches. You read through Paul's epistles, you see that care and that concern, that that yearning for the churches of Christ to be growing in faith, to be growing in unity, to be growing in grace and love. And you can hear it in, in, in reading it. You could feel how much this man cared for these people and labored over them. And this is what we have from all of those apostles. This care and concern, this, this intense labor on behalf of Christ for His church. You know, Christ didn't stop at His ascension into heaven uh, in dealing with His people. He continues to work in His people. And in the beginning here, in this primitive church, the apostolic church, how much He used these men to build that. And His Holy Spirit keeps working. He worked in them and He continues to work in us. Such amazing things that we behold when we look at these blessed saints and the work that God did through them. All of which not to their glory, but to the glory of God alone. When we look at Revelation and we see this this wonderful vision here, these things, their names aren't written on that foundation for their glory. It's written on there for God's glory. Just as when we receive crowns, it talks about us having crowns in heaven. Those aren't there for anything that we did. Those are there for what God did through us. Those are marks of God's glory and of God's works so that He receives all the honor and the praise. These men are a testament to the power and the authority and the glory of Jesus Christ. And that will be remembered forever. The work of Christ, not not them themselves and their work. Looking now at verse 2, Matthew 10, 2. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Here we are given this first special designation as to the office and the ministry of these men, apostles. The word apostle in Greek means messenger. It is one who has been commissioned to speak on behalf of another. The usage of, uh, usage of this word in the New Testament doesn't just leave us with a plain meaning uh, as a messenger sent forth. You know, it's, no, no offense, brother, it's not like these are just mailmen. You know, they're not just that type of messenger. They're not just delivering that kind of thing. What we see in the Scripture is that there is something much more to this, something much more than just handing off a message. 
There's a whole lot more to it here, as we'll see as we continue through the Gospels. They're being uh, set apart for a special ministry. Their authority over the churches, their authority in Christ's kingdom on earth, their miraculous works, these men were no mere messengers. They taught, they preached, they performed all of these special works, these, these good deeds, these miraculous things, and it points to a special mission, a special position that God had created through them. It shows how mighty God is in creating these things, setting these men apart in a particular position, in a, in a particular office. We still have God setting people apart today in offices in the church, pastors, deacons, two offices uh, within the church. These, at this period of time, in that primitive church, would have been subordinate to the apostles. The apostles would have been over these men, over the churches. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20 reads, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. These men had an authoritative office in the household of God. When we talk about pastors and deacons, we see those reserved for the local churches. But these men, they were above that. Their power didn't just exert over one particular local congregation. This was over the household of God. Their influence, their power went across, went across the board to all of the children of God. And, he was, and they were used in establishing this foundation, laying this foundation for the growth of individual believers, for the growth of the church, each local church. They were laying the foundation for the edification of the believers. They were laying the foundation that laid a doctrine there that would unify the people together. The doctrines that the apostles taught are part of the foundation of our faith, all which is built upon Christ, Him being the chief cornerstone, because these guys didn't go out and just build their own structures. What they were building was all based upon Christ. I read earlier from Acts chapter 1 where Peter began to make the case for replacing Judas. And in his teachings there to the disciples, uh, as he was led by the Holy Spirit, he gives us, Peter gives us the essential requirements of an apostle. Acts chapter 1 verses 21 through 22, he says, Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, so these are men that, are, that have been there from the beginning, following Christ with, the, with the, the original twelve, beginning from the baptism of John until that same day that He was taken up from us. So from that baptism, from the very beginning, until the time of the ascension, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of His resurrection. So they needed to be there from the beginning, be there throughout the ministry of Christ, witness that uh, resurrection, witness the resurrected Christ, and have been there at the ascension. Now, it's hard to tell. We see some people coming and going. Sometimes we see large crowds leaving Christ because they were offended at what He said. This is pretty amazing here when we think about it, that somebody would be following Him around all of this time. These were some very faithful disciples. And here, 
at this day, at this, at this particular moment, there's about 120 people present, the Scripture says. And out of that 120 people, two are appointed out of it. Two are brought forth. Here are the two men that meet this requirement of the, out of the 120 that are there. And Peter presents them. They were prayed over and then lots were cast to determine God's will. Who will take the apostleship of Judas? Matthias was chosen and then numbered. He was chosen by God and then numbered with the apostles. This is pretty significant here. God wanted this to be maintained, this number. He reserved these two men from the beginning. And even here in this moment, just as Jesus called out and chose those others, He made it clear, I have chosen you. Even here, Matthias is still being chosen by God. They were trusting that when they cast the lots, which they were doing in accordance with what they had known from the Old Testament, that God would be the one to make that decision and it would fall because God is sovereign and in control of all things. This very act here of them shows that they were trusting in the sovereignty of God, uh, that He would have control, that, that providence would guide however the lots would be to come. This title of apostle that is given to these men established a respect and an honor for those who were blessed to be called by the Lord and serve Him in such a grand way. A lot of people look at it and say it doesn't look so grand, all the work that they, they had to do, the labor, all the sufferings and the persecutions. It's easy to look at it and say that doesn't look all that grand. But as children of God, we look at the grace of God. We look at how He works in His people. We look at how gracious God is to us what He's given to us in His Word, how He's established His church, the work that He does in His church. And we look at these men and we're like, praise God for these men. Praise God what He did through these men. There was no higher earthly authority among men after the resurrection of Christ. After the ascension of Christ, I'm sorry. After the ascension of Christ, these men were the highest authority on earth among men, and yet they still were submissive to the authority of Christ above. That is where their authority came from. That is who they kept pointing all of their ministry, all of their lives towards. And for those that would be martyred, even in death, they were glorifying Christ and pointing it all towards Him. The ministry of the apostles pointed to heaven because they were they were messengers commissioned from above. Their messages are to be obeyed as coming from the sender, from the author of those messages. Christ commissioned them to be this way. This is why we believe that all of the Scriptures are authoritative, inspired in the true Word of God. Just as, uh, not just the red letters of the Scripture... There are those who will look at the Bible today and we call them red-letter Christians. They, they look at the red letters of Jesus and they say, well, that's the only really authoritative thing there because it came straight from God. No. If you read the red letters, you'd know that Jesus commissioned these men to speak on His behalf and what they say is what He has ordained them to say. They are speaking on His behalf. They're saying His words. It's why all of the New Testament is authoritative, not just the red letters. Jesus was the original apostle, an apostle sent by the Father. 
John 12, 49, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. With this power and this authority, He grants it then to His apostles to speak on His behalf, just as He spoke on behalf of the Father. Just as He said what the Father said He should say, and speak what the Father said He should speak, so too the apostles. Everything that Jesus did was according to the will of the Father. It was done on behalf of the Father. It was to be received by the people as if it came straight from the Father. This is how Jesus continued to, to convey this throughout His ministry. If you would, please turn to John chapter 14. John 14, 5. John chapter 14, verse 5. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he also do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And so we have this perfect example here of this relationship between the Father and the Son, this submissiveness there, this this going out and speaking on behalf of the Father, everything being ordained of the Father, everything being glorifying to the Father. And the apostles are a step down from this. They are are to take that example, and this isn't perfect. They are mere men. Jesus Christ, being the perfect God-man, was able to accomplish all of this uh, with perfection. It was constant. There was a, a, a unity there between the Father and Son that is not there between God and His people. There is because Christ Himself is God. But we have this relationship that is the example for the apostles, that they are going to speak on behalf of Christ, that everything they do is to glorify Him. We receive the doctrines of the apostles because they are the God-ordained messengers chosen to represent Christ. Matthew lists the twelve men called out by name as it is important to the children of God to remember such men as used by God and how he used them. These men are pretty, pretty uh, 
essential in the gospel message as we read through the gospels. They're, uh, they're a part of it. How many times have we, have we gone to this quote or quoted uh, from it where uh, Christ is saying that I am the way, the truth, and the life? What's the context that it was in? Speaking and addressing things here with the, the apostles, questions by the apostles. Just as the children in the Old Testament, just as the, the Israelites in the Old Testament would set up memorials to remember the 12 tribes of Israel, here we have in the Scriptures, in the Word of God, this memorial of these names being listed of these men, that we remember them here and now for what God has done, for His grace and His love that He administered through them while they were here and what we've learned from them since. Some of the apostles on, the, on this list are well known amongst Christians. Uh, we see a number of them mentioned throughout Scripture. We learn little bits about them. We see a lot about Peter. We, we can learn a great deal of things about Peter, the character of the man uh, and, and, and what he was uh, early on in his life while Christ was still here on earth, and we see what kind of man he was after the resurrection. It was, a, it was a, different, a different man almost to see how God empowered him. This shows how great this ministry of apostleship was. And we have extra biblical writings concerning some of these apostles, and some of them are kind of outlandish things. Some of these were created by the Catholic Church to, to meet their doctrines and their theology. They're, they're not authoritative. And, and we have church traditions and and so forth. And so we, we have some information, we have some historical records as to some of these apostles. But in Scripture, we don't have a whole lot of details about them. We do learn a lot about them, but some of these personal details we, we don't know a lot about. Some of these men we know nothing about at all. We're not given anything about some of these men. We're not sure on what their calling was. We're not sure on where their ministry took them only through tradition, not through the authority of Scripture. What we do know about all the apostles, save Jesus, is that they were important to God and important enough to be remembered in the Word, throughout the Word, to be utilized in the foundation of the church, to be etched upon the foundation of the new Jerusalem. They were important. They were important to God in the propagation of the gospel and the building of the church. And as Acts 17, 6 says, these were the men that God used to turn the world upside down. He used them in some radical ways when you look at the time period and what He did with them. In Matthew's list, Matthew 10, uh, 2 here, the first listed is Simon, who is called Peter. Peter, Petrus in Greek, signifies a rock or a stone. It was a name that was given to him by Christ. The name distinguishes him from Simon the Canaanite mentioned in verse 4. And there's all kinds of speculation out there. There's all kinds of things written as to why Jesus named him this. Uh, and and we, we may be able to glean some things from Scripture concerning why Jesus chose this, this name. But we're not given anything definite in Scripture as to why this name was given to him. We kind of sur surmise, and as time goes on, maybe as you read through Scripture, the Lord will will give us that, uh, illuminate us to understand that better, but we don't have any clear passage that says definitively. We have a lot more things uh, with Peter. He's probably one of our uh, 
most talked about uh, apostles through the Word, but we're not going to go in through all of that today. We're just kind of a brief overview here of each of these. The second listed is uh, by Matthew is Andrew, his brother. Both Peter and Andrew were followers of John the Baptist prior to following Christ. We saw this as we looked uh, earlier uh, in Matthew chapter 4. We looked at their calling. Uh, we looked at how they came to Christ. We looked at how He called them into full-time ministry. Uh, and these two were called together to follow Christ. They're, they're very tightly uh, put together in Scripture uh, in, in those initial days of uh, following as disciples. Then listed is James, the son of Zebedee, uh, so listed as to distinguish him from the other James listed, who is James, the son of Alphaeus. And John, his brother, the beloved disciple, writer of the gospel of John, the three epistles of John, the book of Revelation, the only apostle, uh, according to history, not to be martyred, the only one to die a natural death. Uh, in the list of apostles in Mark 3, 16 through 19, it is written that Jesus surnamed them, these two brothers, Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. Verse 3 here, Matthew then lists Philip. Um, the apostle John tells us in John 1, now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. He was called by Christ in that previous verse, John 1, the day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. After Philip, Bartholomew. It is believed by most that Bartholomew and Nathaniel are the same person. Uh, and there's lots of speculations on, on, on this, but it does appear, and I think this is most likely, uh, that, that Bartholomew, Bartholomew and Nathaniel are the same. And church history reflects this quite well, Not, you know, even apart from Roman Catholic history. Uh, this is also written throughout. Uh, as Nathaniel is not listed by Matthew, Mark, or Luke in their lists, but all of them list Bartholomew together with Philip. Some of the orders of the apostles are a little different with these other writers, but yet all of them put these two men together, uh, and they keep the, the other brothers together as well, Peter and Andrew, James and John, uh, which leads many to believe that this reflects this association uh, with these two coming together in following Jesus uh, and them being uh, very tightly woven together. In John 1, 45 through 46, it says, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there be any good that come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. So we have these two uh, already friends. Uh, we're not sure how, but we know that there's already this pre-existing relationship. Next listed is Thomas. John also records some details about Thomas. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 27. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the prints of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. 
Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Quite a scene here. Thomas is described here first, verse 24, by his Hebrew name Thomas, and his Greek one, his Greek name Didymus, which both mean a twin. Now, it may indicate that he had a twin, that he had a a twin sibling. We're not told for certain whether he did or not. This is kind of an assumption based on the name. I feel bad for this guy. Maybe it's because of his name. Maybe I have a little bit more of an affection towards him, but I feel bad for him. Uh, You know, he was very pessimistic throughout his ministry. We were already read he was questioning Jesus before and he kind of has this attitude here. He's, he doesn't think things very well. But yet, his reaction in this passage branded him for over 2,000 years now as doubting Thomas. I feel bad for him because he wasn't doubting anymore after he saw the risen Lord. Uh, but he'll be remembered that way, I'm sure, until, until the Lord returns I would rather remember him for what's in the next verse. John 20, 28, And Thomas answered and saith unto him, My Lord and my God. What a wonderful profession. Uh, It's not said whether or not he went and he touched Jesus. I really doubt he did. (laughs) I think he would have been so overcome just by the initial sight of Christ that there was no need to have to go touch him. We're not told whether he did or not, but he just makes that profession. My Lord and my God, what a wonderful thing to say. What a wonderful thing to remember about him. I I would much rather remember that about him than than his pessimism and his doubting. Next listed is Matthew the publican. Matthew lists himself here with his former occupation, the publican, as if to show how gracious he is to the Lord that He is not living as such a person as he was, that he is thankful that there's a change here. Matthew the publican, he was a publican. Now he is listed among these 12. He is one of these men who have been called and set apart. A person who was once of such a despised estate, hated by his countrymen, and now he's being used by the Messiah to preach the gospel and to perform these miraculous things. We also know that he went by the name Levi, as we see in other uh, lists and other things concerning him. We've looked at that before. And since we've already looked at Matthew previously, not that long ago, uh, we won't go much further into him, any further into him. Then there is James, the son of Alphaeus, also known as James the Lesser in Mark 1540. This is also likely the James mentioned in Matthew 2756, among which was Mary Magdalene, the Mary, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. And in Mark 16:1 it says, And when the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, the Mary, and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. This is also the same man who wrote the epistle. I skip one. 
I'm sorry, I skipped one. And again, in, in uh, Luke 24, 10, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women that were there with them, which told these things unto the apostles. So it appears that James' mother, James the Lesser's mother, was one of the Marys, one of the women who witnessed the crucifixion of Christ and who had gone to the tomb to prepare the Lord's body. Next, Matthew lists uh, Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus. This is most likely the Judas, not Iscariot, mentioned in John 14.22, which reads, Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? It is believed that James the Lesser and Thaddeus are brothers. Acts 1.13 says, And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James. Uh, so from this passage and from other historical things, uh, this connects these two men together. This is also mentioned in Luke 6.16, which reads, And Judas the brother of James. Again, Judas, not Iscariot. This is also the same man who wrote the epistle of Jude. So how do we go from Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, to Jude? Matthew Paul wrote, Mark chapter 3.18 mentions not Labaius or Labaius at all, which makes some think that the words are transposed and should be Thaddeus, the son of Labaius. For Thaddei in the Syriac is the same with Judas. It's the same. They mean the same. Dr. Lightfoot further notes, Thaddeus is a warping of the name Judas, that this apostle might be the better distinguished from Iscariot. He was called Labaius, I suppose, from the town Laba, a seacoast town of Galilee. Uh, so more referring to his location uh, but also here with Thaddeus, a warping from the Syriac to get that name Jude. So this is just uh, different variations. Remember that we're dealing, dealing with a period of time where we've got names and words that are being used in Hebrew, uh, Aramaic, Greek. Uh, here we have uh, Syriac. Uh, so we've got a, a variety of languages here being used and often being used from region to region. Uh, and so, still we have this, though. Uh, all of these things trace back. We can find what these names were, knowing these things, knowing that this is Jude. Back at verse 4, Matthew then lists Simon the Canaanite. Luke calls him Simon, Simon Zelotes in Luke 6.15 and Acts 1.13, referring to Simon as a Canaanite is not to refer to him as a pagan. You think in the Old Testament, uh, Canaanites were, were bad. They were an enemy of Israel. Uh, but this is not so because all of the apostles were Hebrews. So he was not a pagan Canaanite, but he was rather from Cana, the city of Cana of Galilee. You will remember this as being the location of our Lord's first miracle where he turned the water to wine. 
Zelotius means zealous. William Hendrickson writes, In all probability this name is here given him because formerly he had belonged to the party of the zealots, which party in its hatred for the foreign ruler who demanded tribute did not shrink from fomenting rebellion against the Roman government. Uh, What we don't know here is why he was referred to as a zealot. He may have been, we have no evidence, scripturally, scripturally or otherwise, that he was part of this zealot group that wanted to raise up a rebellion against the government. It could be that he was zealous for Christ. Uh, we really don't know for certain. Uh, this is kind of speculation as to why the name is there. So uh, take it as you like, whether he was a zealot uh, against Rome or uh, a, a zealot for Christ. Um, we don't know for sure. The last to be named, Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Matthew didn't pull any punches here. You know, the, right off the bat, here's the 12 men that Jesus called aside for this special ministry. But out of these, this one here, this is the guy that betrayed the Lord. This guy, although he was called, he's not like the rest of us. And this is from the beginning here of this ministry of the apostles. It is believed that Iscariot references him being from Kirioth, a place in southern Judea. Uh, he is well known as the betrayer of the Son of God. Matthew makes it known here. It's mentioned throughout the Scriptures and a few other places as well. And throughout all of history, this man is going to be known as the one who betrayed the Lord Jesus. But some will raise the question, well, why did Jesus choose this man? Why did He even bring him in? to this original 12. And we kind of looked and touched on this already, but I think we get a little bit more clear of an answer with three verses of Scripture. Luke twenty-two twenty-two says, And truly the Son of Man goeth, as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. Acts two twenty-three, which I read earlier, says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And Acts 4.28 says, For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. This was all part of the will of God. This is what God's plan was. This is how He would set it up for Christ to go to be tried, to be mocked and abused, to be whipped, to be beaten, and to be hung upon that cursed tree. These things were predetermined before the foundation of the, of the world. When Judas was chosen here at the beginning, he was chosen unto this purpose. These other men were chosen to a different purpose, to be the messengers of Christ, to spread the gospel, to do those signs and wonders in confirming that message. Judas was chosen for his wickedness and his evil, not because of what God knew he would do. God knew what he was going to do, and God used it according to his plan, according to his will. All of these things perfectly accomplished. Judas was not a regenerate believer, for not only was he known as a devil, but Satan himself entered into Judas which could not be done if he had been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. 
Luke 22.3 says, Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. He was a tool of the devil and used accordingly in the plan of God. While Satan intended evil in Judas, Satan entered into him with the hopes that he could infiltrate and ultimately, ultimately lead to the death of Jesus Christ. God was using this all along to fulfill His purposes. Satan had no idea what was coming. He thought that he could go and destroy the Son of God and use Judas to do it. He was sorely, sorely wrong. Jesus crushed him. Genesis 3.15 said that Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. And God used that serpent of old to accomplish that. Him entering into Judas, him going through all these things, he was actually setting himself up to be crushed by the Son of God who conquered sin and death, who was victorious over these things, victorious over the devil. Quite, quite a, a great way of thinking our Lord has <laughs> to use Him in such a way. It's amazing to think about these things, how, how the devil raged against Christ, how he rages against the church and against the believers. And all of these things God will use to accomplish His plan and to glorify Himself. And all the more rage that comes out, all of the more hatred and anger that comes out from that wicked one, God will use it to glorify Himself greater and greater and greater, which will make that final victory all the more sweeter and glorious. When that day, when that wicked serpent is finally cast into the lake of fire, what a glorious day that will be. There's a lot more we can look at concerning Judas, but in the context here, we won't give him any more than what has already been said. Jesus called these men to an extraordinary ministry. From ordinary lives is what we would consider many of their lives. A, a publican, a tax collector, fisherman. Uh, he calls them out of that life to this extraordinary ministry. Matthew chapter 10, we're looking at the beginning of it here. This is referred to as an ordination sermon, this whole chapter. Jesus gives a mission at the end of chapter 9 to go into the fields that are ready for harvest. He calls His laborers into His harvest. Matthew names those chosen, honoring what the Lord has done. Jesus commissions them, giving, him, giving them this great power and authority to speak on His behalf, to perform these miracles. He equips them by giving them these miraculous powers to confirm the message. It's there. These things are there to confirm the authenticity of the gospel itself, not of just these men, but what they are preaching. These things are accompanying the preaching of the gospel, authenticating it, confirming it letting people know that it is true, that it is truly coming from God and from no other. It's not even coming from these men. It's coming from God. As we progress through chapter 10, we will see instructions given to the apostles in their ministry. We will see the Lord give them instruction on preaching, 
and ministry. He instructs them on their character and their conduct and how to deal with other people. This is quite an amazing chapter as far as ministry goes along, but there's much we can glean from it as disciples. The Lord further tells them of the sufferings that will come and the persecutions that they are going to endure while they are speaking on His behalf. He gives them encouragement that whatever will come, God is in control and God is going to take care of all things. As we continue through the Word of the Lord, let us be praying that as we see Him addressing His apostles here in their ministry, that we would see things that benefit us, that are edifying to us, that He would illuminate us to these things and reveal to us how this wonderful ordination here for His apostles, this wonderful mission, can be of benefit to each of us, each of His disciples. And we know that certainly all of it is to the glory of God and to Him alone. Amen.